0: At some point in our lives, we will all experience the death of a loved one. If you or someone you know is experiencing the grief that comes with losing someone you love, then I have a life-changing experience to offer you. If you could connect with your loved one through a medium and talk to them one more time, would you like that opportunity? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I would like to give you access to the 2019 Afterlife Awareness Conference live stream. This event is happening June 6th through 9th in Salt Lake City, Utah, but we are bringing it to the comfort of your own home with our live stream access. We have an early bird special that ends April 15th, 2019 for only $99. Over 25 hours of education about the afterlife, near death experiences, how other cultures grieve, and information and ways on how you can heal the grief within. For your access to this amazing content, visit path11productions.com and get your access before the price goes up to $129. If your wallet is a little tight this month, no problem. We got you covered. We also offer a payment plan that makes it easy to pay for your live stream access. Take the step to heal your grief and give yourself the gift of healing today. All right, everyone. I would like to bring our guest on our show today. We are going to be talking about UFOs and a documentary that documents a true story of a man whose name you might be familiar with, Travis Walton. And our guest today is Jennifer Stein. She is a self-taught filmmaker who never went to film school. She is an entrepreneur who started making films in the 1990s while running nonprofit organizations, raising her two children and running a special events business. Harnessing the power of the moving visual image to educate, inspire, and empower, Jennifer uses film to help achieve her goals, to further important causes, and help open people's awareness to important issues. Jennifer has a strong interest in the UFO phenomenon, crop circles, and ancient archaeology. The result is a powerful combination of community leadership and purposeful filmmaking. Jennifer likes to collaborate with other filmmakers and learns from all of them. Jennifer's film website is On Wings Production and provides a sampling of her past productions and award-winning documentary films. And today we will be discussing her most recent project, Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Jennifer, welcome to our show. Thank you, April. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Now, I have to say that I am just starting to delve into uh, the UFO phenomena, Um, my focus has always been more on, um, healing and psychology and more, I would say more in this past year or so, we've had some more guests on that are talking more about it, educating me on it. And I was not born yet when this happened to Travis Walton. (laughs) So this was actually the first time I have ever heard of his name. Um, so I learned so much, uh, watching the documentary and I love the fact that you are a self-taught filmmaker who never went to film school because it either did I and uh, you know I was kind of just teaching myself uh, with Mike's you know help and assistance when we were making our documentary films I came more from the mental health background and your work was beautifully done I just I really really enjoyed it it was a very very great documentary so I'm really excited uh, to talk about it today but can you give us a little more background just on yourself and what led you to being so curious about the UFO phenomena
1: well Uh, April, I'm an experiencer myself. In fact, the same year, 1975, I had a pretty close encounter with, um, what I will describe as an odd rectangle of white light that was less than 500 feet outside a bedroom window at like five 30 in the morning, waking me up. And, uh, I it's one of those very odd things that stays in my memory. I was 19 years old at the time. I didn't know a thing about the UFO phenomenon. I was experiencing and experimenting, I would say with, with consciousness and meditation and healing and reading things of like Edgar Casey's work. So I was, open-minded but still terribly confused and the event stayed in my gray box for about 45 years I'm sorry not not 40 years for about 25 years until I could really get a handle on possibly what I experienced and so I was kind of primed or ready uh, when I turned 45 and realized I wasn't alone at that at that time in my life um, there was someone else in my house who saw everything I saw and when I realized that and I realized that what I saw was probably a real thing even though I couldn't really fully wrap my brain around it or describe it then I realized that I wasn't alone that these odd things that can happen and that we're probably not alone in the universe, and there are other dimensional interfaces that take place from time to time. And I think uh, that's kind of what gave me the courage to step into this field when I was about 45, which was about almost, uh, I'm 60 now, so, you know, that was about 25 years ago. And I've just continued to learn and read and go to conferences and so I started to befriend different authors whom I got to know in the field and I started to help them with projects. I've also done a project about Betty and Barney Hill uh, with Kathy Martin. Uh, that's a very famous UFO case from 1961 in the uh, White Mountains of uh, New Hampshire. So it's um, it's been a gradual, you know a process for me, but certainly a worthwhile one, because I'm learning the whole time I'm doing these things.
0: Now, what compelled you to want to tell the story about Travis Walton? Well, you know,
1: believe it or not, Travis's name is is known worldwide uh, for people who study the UFO phenomenon. And there was a very famous Paramount picture made in 1993 called Fire in the Sky. It's actually the same title of Travis's book called Fire in the Sky which he wrote which is about a 400 page book. But most people don't read these days especially younger generations. Not 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 to discredit them in any way, but many of them live their lives in in short sound bites and in film and they don't really take the time to read a 400 page or 500 page book to understand specific details about an event. So most people were you know basing their understanding of Travis's story from this Hollywood film which had fictionalized parts of the story. They it wasn't a documentary film. They didn't try to stick to the real facts of the story. And I felt that was a great opportunity because many of the crew members that he was working with, there was a logging crew in the forest, and many of those crew members were still alive. And at the time, the the police sheriffs and and, uh, deputies who were involved were still alive. Now some of them have passed away. Uh, The polygraph uh, expert from the state of Arizona who was involved in giving these men polygraph, he was alive, so it was really a great way to go back and uh you know unpack this story and as a filmmaker I thought it was a great challenge so that was one of my main motivations is to tell the true story rather than the Hollywoodized version because there there were some pretty significant differences and also it's a real way to understand who Travis is and what he went through you know it was a I took it as a personal look into Travis's life and um the, one of the other major reasons we did it is Peter Robbins and I were both involved in attempting to help Travis organize a conference around his event. Because in many parts of the country where significant UFO events have taken place, like Roswell, New Mexico, or say McMinnville, and in, in, I think that's in Oregon, there have been now UFO events which have sprung up and our annual events. There are some down in the Gulf Breeze area in Tampa, Florida, and there are some like in Exeter, New Hampshire, where other significant UFO events have taken place. So it's kind of become a phenomenon, and it can actually make a huge economic impact on a small town like Travis is from. So we started out helping him to uh, sort of coaching him to organize a conference, and the film was going to be part of the central focus of the conference. We could use the film, show the film as part of the conference, especially for the 40th anniversary, which the film was made for. So there were these combination of influences that kind of came together, and um, and I was lucky enough to get Travis to trust me to work
0: with him, and the uh, kind of the rest is history. Yeah. I I know, you know, watching it from, you know, a perspective of definitely wanting to believe and and do believe in some of this stuff. And then also a little bit of, being kind of like that open-minded skeptic, one of the things that I found, uh, I think, really compelling was the section in the documentary about the polygraph test and, you know, where five of these men were being tested and really like the statistical chance of all of them passing, you know, after witnessing an event like this, like so many people wanted to debunk and, you know, try to find Something within the polygraph to say, well, this isn't, you know, a very great testing tool, but, you know, I know that you had one of the experts that was um, administering the test, but to have that percentage to be so high where they all passed it, I think that that lended a lot of credibility uh, to the men's stories. I mean, and overall, when you're really watching them as as the audience member, you know, as the viewer, I mean, you could see the compassion in the way that they're telling the story that, that this really um, happened Like, this was their experience. There's there's no reason for them to make something up. And I think the um, documentary also shows very much of the pain that these men went through as a result of being connected, you know, to Travis and witnessing this. And who would want to make something up? And, you know, the one guy had to, like, leave town, you know, ended up leaving town and just all of the other stuff that Travis went through with losing his job and the way that the community looked at them. Like, there was nothing for them to benefit for having this testimonial of of what happened and lie about it. Yes, April, you are absolutely right. Um,
1: And that's one of the major reasons I wanted to make the film, is to really tell their story, because this event ruined their lives. (laughs) It really did. It closed a lot of doors for them. Uh, These were all uh, boys from a Mormon community. Snowflake, Arizona is a Mormon town. So um, there isn't a lot of, you know, everyone in the town knows each other. There isn't a lot of room for uh, shenanigans. You know, if if you steal somebody's car, they're going to know about it, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so if you make up a story like this that involves the whole town and several other towns helping the police force look for these, uh, you know, the missing boy, which was Travis. He was missing for five days. So there were over five hundred people, at least a hundred people every day, out looking for him.
0: Yeah, and that lasted
1: for five days.
0: Right. <laughs> That was the other compelling part to me, right? If I'm trying to explain, well, what's the possibility of him being missing? You know, um, you know, these men left the scene for a period of time, then they came back, and he was gone. Um, you know, but then the search crew—they brought in the dogs, the helicopters. Even if he had stumbled somewhere um, and wasn't taken up by a craft, it still doesn't quite explain him missing for. Right. Right. these five days, you know, right. the, the, the hounds
1: would have found his tracks, right? <laughs> if exactly. he'd gotten up and walked away, right. And, and hidden under a log somewhere, which he really couldn't do because it was too cold in the forest. He would have frozen to death at night that high up. it's set the elevation is about 7,000 feet where they were working on this rim called the Mogollon Rim. So in November at night, it's like well below 32 degrees up there. So Over five days, he would have frozen to death or been eaten by a bear or a coyote or, you know, a moose or something. It's not a hospital area to be in. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very unhospitable, you know, for
0: someone to be out in the forest at night like that. Right. And the other thing, too, that struck me was, you know, like a little bit of longitudinal data, you know, of after all of these years have gone by and the way that the trees grew in the specific area of where the craft was and how they studied that. um, To me, there was something there as well that made me say, hmm, okay, (laughs) yes, interesting. Isn't that interesting? So I can explain a little bit of that for your
1: listeners if they're if they're if you're interested. Yeah. Um, Travis had made many trips back to the site, um, starting about 10 or 15 years after the events. Um, and then gradually various film crews have gone back there as well with them. And it was actually the crew boss, Mike Rogers, who noticed one time in the middle of a snowstorm, actually, when they were trying to get to the location for for a, a film crew, they couldn't find it. And they thought it was the snow that was detracting them. But then they realized that the trees in the area where the event had taken place were like a great bit larger than the surrounding trees. And trees usually grow uniformly, like a group of trees, like 20 or 30 trees, just don't take off and grow 35 percent more very quickly for 15 years and then and then slow down again unless something unusual happened and that they started to sample the trees and realized that the trees had grown in a circumference around where this craft had been the trees grew 33 percent larger than the trees you know 10 feet away from them and what could cause that you know why And doing some research, we actually learned that um, there are, uh, from the Chernobyl incident, there were studies done out of a university in Poland that examined what's called the Scott pine trees, which is basically a cousin to the Ponderosa pine tree. What they realized is these Ponderosa pine trees in um, well, I should say the Scott Pines now in the five mile radius around Chernobyl all grew at about a thirty three percent growth rate for about fifteen to twenty years after the Chernobyl incident, and it's believed that the radiation caused by that nuclear meltdown forces the pine tree to grow faster. It puts out uh, you know a rapid amount of wood fiber at about read a, well at a 33 times its normal growth rate and it's pretty well documented and we found the exact same percentage of growth rate in the uh, ponderosa pine trees right around the incident and not only did the some of the trees grow bigger but the most rapid form of growth was shown on one side of each of these trees. It was not uniformly around the entire circumference of the tree. It was only the side of the tree that faced where this UFO craft was. And I just found that stunning. It's like
0: stunning evidence right there in the wood pulp. <clears throat> and uh, I, mean, I would agree. That was pretty shocking and stunning to me as well. I was like, wow, okay. Uh, you know, that was like another thing that just made this even more believable, you know, yeah. to me. Yeah. Now, yeah. how how do you do What are some of the... Um, I know that you guys also talked about that famous debunker. There's there's a difference between maybe people who are skeptics and people who are trying to just debunk the story. But And I'm, I'm less interested in people who are trying to debunk it, but more of people who are maybe of the open-minded, kind of skeptical community. Um, what are some of their arguments about this? Like, do they feel, was it really a spacecraft or was it something within our military? Um, well...
1: Travis's case has, uh, you know, it's quite famous. And so it was debunked for many, many years. And in fact, it is still debunked today. Um, there are people that say, oh, it, it really never happened. And, you know, Travis was hiding out in a cabin. And, um, you know, the men just made up the story to get out of a contract. But when I read Travis's book, I realized that I needed to spend at least, you know, 10 minutes in the film addressing this very famous debunker named Philip Class, because that's really what he was. Although no one really identified him as a debunker while he was alive, he was just considered to be a scientific skeptic. You know, they, he, he wrote for a, a prestigious magazine called Air and Space, and that was printed in Washington, D.C. And uh, he kind of promoted himself as just being this, you know, logical skeptic that really would, you know, show the American public what they weren't looking at and show how they the wool was being pulled over their eyes by these young boys. And uh, he would never really look at the facts of anything connected to the story he would just shoot from the hip and invent things that he thought up or dreamt up without any kind of proof and that was that was kind of proven time and time again because he came up with several different ideas about what he thought was going on and why this event happened but you know i think people need to be skeptical in that we we, we do need to not be fooled by people and there are you know, charlatans out there that will try to sell you all sorts of, you know, various things. The the, the old time phrase was a snake oil salesman, right, who was coming around with snake oil that would cure all your ales and, you know, make you, you know, vibrantly well and let you live to a hundred. And so anyone who's considered to be, you know, trying to sell you a bill of goods is sometimes called a snake oil salesman. But you know, some of the best uh, researchers in this field, like Stanton Friedman, actually went to the site a- and interviewed all of the people that he could and uh, evaluated, uh, you know, Travis uh, personally. This was long before there was evidence of tree growth that we could uh, trace, and you know, he Uh, wrote extensively about it, as well as J. Allen Hynek, who was involved in the Blue Book Project. There's actually a new program out now on, I think, uh, the History Channel called Blue Book. And it's about the Blue Book Project. Um, So I I haven't watched the show yet. I'm I'm sure they're changing some of the facts. But some of the best researchers in the field came out to this uh, site in Arizona and spoke to Travis. And in spite of that, and in spite of their reports and UFO research groups came out, this has been a highly contentious uh, story ever since. And there are still people that, you know, think it's think it's a, you know, a, a lot of bullshit. Excuse my French if I'm <laughs> right. allowed to say that on the air. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't. Uh, having gotten to know Travis and gotten to know the men involved and actually gotten to interview the police Uh, I realized that both the the sheriff and the, um, the deputy that I interviewed asked me to turn off the camera at a certain point when, you know, they said, when we're done, I'll tell you some other stuff. And I had to turn the camera off and pack it up and put the mics away so they knew we weren't recording them. Mm. And uh, they told me of additional events that were even stranger than Travis's case that they had experienced over the period of time that they uh, worked for the police force in Arizona. So I'm convinced that there are uh, some unusual, you know, things appearing in the sky, whether or not they're uh, experimental military aircraft or or. Some kind of secret space program that our government doesn't really talk about and our military doesn't talk about. Possibly, it could be something like that, or possibly we could be visited by, uh, you know, another intel- intelligent, you know, species that is uh, possibly using planet Earth as a stopping off point, or maybe they're here. They're here mining minerals. We have a lot of rare earth minerals here. And we do have, you know, fresh water and lots of hiding places for them and wonderful forest areas as well as underground. So they very, you know, that we could very well be, have, you know, or have other species living amongst us inside the earth or, you know, in remote areas on the earth that we are unaware of. And, you know, most people will live and die their entire lives and never know it. Funny. And that's and that's the way they want it. And these other intelligent species, I think, realize how barbaric we are, and I don't think they really want to, you know, involve themselves with uh, our, uh, you know, politics or our governments or our leaders because they just think we're, we're fools and children and, you know, like we're, we're kids in the playground with atomic weapons and they want to do anything they can to contain us, but they don't really want to engage with us. I think yeah. they're waiting for us to become a little
0: more mature. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, more and more information is, is out there. We had a really interesting guest on, Cheryl Costa. Um, oh,
1: yes. I love Cheryl.
0: Yeah. And she was really talking about, you know, all of that data that she put together in, in the book and, you know, just um, the reportings out there of the UFO sightings and how, you know, the government has released documents and, and things of that sort. But you, you know, you put a good Um, section into the documentary too about why is this information just not coming out and being totally admitted by our government and kind of what that could create you know some mass hysteria or you know creating more fear within people and and things of that sort so
1: right right what would the government say (laughs) right (laughs) like we'd be keeping this a secret for 60 years right you know people's heads would uh, be on chopping blocks
0: Exactly. Now, has anyone ever um, questioned whether or not some of and this might might have been more of a question that I had for Peter Robbins, who was going to join us on the call, but we had a little bit of scheduling conflict. So we're sorry that he couldn't be here, Um, but I know that he's a great researcher in all of this, and I know that he also helped you um, as the associate producer uh, with researching some of the facts uh, you know, for your documentary. But, you know, one of the questions I was thinking about asking him is, you know, are these really alien, uh, abductions or are these people just really experiencing an out of body state? Um, and that might be more for the people who are experiencing or having an alien abduction in their home, in their bedroom at night. I'm not, uh, actually referring this to travis walton with and you know the group of men where they experienced and all saw a craft but um you know just wondering if you have any thoughts about that
1: well there's actually an incredibly uh wonderful new organization which has sprung up and it's called free to the foundation for research into extraterrestrial experiencers or extraterrestrial experience and They are actually collecting data. Now, it's somewhat subjective because people answer their own questions. But this uh, questionnaire has gone out to well over, I think, 3,000 people who believe they are abductees. And they don't know each other. And they answer and fill out questionnaires. There's over 600 questions in the test. And the commonality of data is then organized into groups and sections where some people have maybe more traumatic experiences and other people have more like enlightening experiences where they're not traumatic at all and they feel that they're given information and and guided and uh they're healed of certain you know physical ailments that they've had and their lives are improved from the the potential of this encounter, which they can't control, but happens at night um, or very, very early in the morning. So there's a wide range of um, experience that goes on in, in this realm. And if you go Back and actually look at, uh, say, ancient literature, you can actually find evidence of it in many cultures. I mean, I've, I've been through many very interesting archives and libraries throughout Europe, looking at old books and even looking at, say, the, the Christian literature, you'll come across drawings of... These devil-like beings that show up with prods and they have tails or they have different looking bodies. You know, they they have like maybe animal-like bodies, but they're standing up and acting and doing things like humans. And they maybe have red eyes or something like that or big eyes. So it's right there, say, even in, you know, Christian literature, but it's often referred to as the devil, that has come to visit you. And then, you know, then you're tried to, you try to protect yourself from this, this devil that comes in the night. So uh, you can even find it in Vedic traditions, in Indian culture, and even in, um, in China and in Japan. You'll find similar things. So I think that, <clears throat> you know, it, there really should be a uh, more serious study Given to this, maybe within the halls of academia, that this is not just something people, you know, uh, make up as a nightmare. And we live in a world in the United States right now where we are entertained to death. Right. And it's very hard to maybe have objectivity because we are so influenced by horror movies and things like this. But if you go back to an earlier time where those sorts of things were not really available, where did then these stories come from? You know, when you didn't have a television you could turn on or you didn't have a movie theater you could go to. There were only books and literature and you know why in the in the deepest archives of spiritual tradition? is there stories of these different states of consciousness and these different beings that come with good messages and with bad messages sometimes or bad experiences and good experiences. So I think that's kind of a clue for any historian who wants to really study the abduction, you know, phenomenon, uh, to go back and look at literature around the world. I have a a very good friend, um, who, uh, his name is Danny Sheehan, and he is a. Um, he went to Yale and became a uh, a priest, and then he also went to law school and ended up becoming the chief counsel for the Vatican for many years. He he no longer holds that position, but he did for about twenty twenty five years, and he got into Vatican archives and saw, you know, many of these things I'm speaking of. And you know you said there's good influences and there's bad influences, and they've always been there. And we just have to learn how to understand them and interpret them. And we're probably not alone in the universe, nor has our previous, you know humankind been alone. But I think that this uh, this group that has a potential to interact with us is diverse. Uh, just as there are billions of potential, you know, stars out there, there are hundreds of thousands of potential planets out there that are Earth-like, and the potential of life developing at an earlier time period than our own life has on planet Earth is hugely probable, and the the potential that that life and and intelligence could travel here and interact with us is also huge so you know i think you can look at the glass half full or half empty on the abduction story and you you can look at the positive sides and the negative sides but probably a lot of our spiritual traditions come out of contact in some way or another and it's interpreted as these Uh, religious traditions that we have from these experiences. And that's kind of a bold statement, maybe. I'm, I'm not saying all of our religious literature refers right back to what we're being told by aliens. No, we have to interpret it and understand it. But if a superior species shows up with superior technology and superior wisdom and tries to guide humanity at an earlier time in history. Uh, what is that going to be interpreted into? You know, uh, it's and that superior technology and superior intelligence really wants to remain obtruse, or you know, um, they want to remain anonymous. They're not here physically walking around and engaging with our leaders openly. You know, we don't see pictures of them in the newspaper. We don't see them on television. They don't want to be seen or known. They want to stay in the background. I think because they
0: want us to develop. Right. Yeah. We we also had another guest on that actually talked quite a bit about um, extraterrestrials in the Bible. Uh, Mar- Michael J. S. Carter. Oh yes. you're familiar yeah. Familiar with his. I am familiar with him. yeah fabulous he really is and and he went into some of that with the religious texts and i was like wow this is really interesting never thought about it that way you know and um so you're right i mean there's there's definitely stuff that suggests from you know way before hollywood started making these movies that there have been you know mess messengers or people not of this body um you know that have been interacting with humans so it's 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 an amazing topic, right? (laughs) It can make your head spin, and you know, there's just so much, uh, you know, that's going into it and research. And you know, somebody who hasn't been really um, immersed in this UFO community, and it's more coming into you know my life and our work now here on the podcast, and the guests that we're bringing on. It does seem that um, maybe some more of this, I don't want to call it hidden research, but some of these stories that it's it's now. Uh, coming out maybe even more for the mainstream. I don't know if sometimes that means that our consciousness is ready for that when more people begin to... um when when more people are reached, I guess, about this topic, as opposed to just having kind of these small little, um, you know, communities of people that come together, but then you're really starting to branch out to people maybe who were avoiding to talk about this topic or really don't want to have any belief in it. But it feels to me that you can't really escape the topic of talking about this.
1: Yes. Know. Yes. You're absolutely right. And April, that's been evidenced throughout history as well. I mean, when um, in the early i would say 47 to certainly to 1952 there were massive ships seen around the country los angeles and and even in the whole roswell story it was a, a story of a pilot who uh, over the Cascade Mountains had a sighting and he was an engineer and saw nine crafts, you know, flying and and being an uh, aeronautical engineer. He came home and uh, reported this all to the local papers. And and there was, you know, front page news coverage for a number of years about UFOs. So people had it in their mindset um, and were really paying attention to it until uh, the government really tried to you know, make fun of people who reported UFOs. And then they came up with Project Blue Book, where there was a place people could send their reports to, so the government really didn't have to answer to them. And then eventually the government decided they're going to close Blue Book. But I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that when things are in the mainstream, it makes more people wake up about certain topics. And Certainly the UFO topic has been a difficult one to handle for certainly 50, 60, 70 years. Now, when MUFON launched a television show called Hangar One with the, I believe it was the History Channel, or maybe it was Discovery, Um, I can't exactly remember which channel hosted it, but we got many, many more reports inside MUFON. Than we had prior to that television show being out there, and now, uh, of course, with Ancient Aliens, people have become very curious about ancient history right. and the potential of aliens being here for a long period of time. I just went to a conference sponsored by Ancient Aliens in; um, <clears throat> it was in uh, Baltimore. There were five thousand people there. Wow! It was amazing, absolutely amazing. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the television and the media has a way to educate in a positive way or a negative way, and it's really up to producers to you know make that decision. Unfortunately, horror and you know scarier things, things that are more unreal, tend to sell better than things that are really
0: true. But uh, Yeah, and and that's a good point, too, because one of the things that I'm finding as I'm talking to more and more people about um, extraterrestrials is that it doesn't, I think that there's been, you know, fear and it's been sensationalized. But, you know, even Travis had said that, um, you know, they're here to help, you know, and possibly in, in his case to save his life. Right. and. You know, and I think if people can begin to do some of this research with more of that open mind, um, you know, that they are here to help and remind us to take care of our earth and that if there is intervention, it's more for peace for humanity than, you know, what Hollywood has kind of showed us where, oh, they're going to, you know, abduct us and do experiments on us and they're just trying to figure us out and, you know, harm us. It's just, you know, I, I don't believe that's, that's what's going on here. Right, right. I mean, they may be literally
1: monitoring the amount of pollutants or lead or things like that that are in our blood and what we are doing to the environment and how it's affecting our species. Right. It, it could be as something simple as that, or they could be doing some sort of genetic interbreeding. It's it's very hard for us to completely know. Or there's probably a, a variety of agendas that are present mm-hmm. and that we've, we've just been You know, we've seen the the, the teeny tippy edge of it from what we can remember in our consciousness and from what we see with craft, you know, on the ground or around in the air. They may be literally doing air quality testing of what kind of metal, you know, particulates are in
0: our atmosphere. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who yeah, knows? Gross. But it is fascinating. I think you did a wonderful job. Um, can you let our listeners know where they can find your documentary to watch?
1: Sure. It's um, They can go to my website uh, for the film, which is easy to remember. It's com. That's the main website for the film. And uh, they can't see the film there, but they can buy a DVD. If they want to just stream it, they can see it at Amazon. If they go to Amazon and Google Travis Walton, uh, you know, the true story of Travis Walton, where it's I think the proper title is Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, they can find it on Amazon. And shortly, it will also be out on some other streaming platforms. We're not exactly sure who, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or Vimeo, but we're actually releasing it with a new title called Alien Abduction, because a film that starts with the letter A is usually appears in the top of the list, and films like that do 80% better just because they start with the letter A. So we are also, you know, releasing it with a with, with a different title, so they can uh, they can you know hunt for it there. Travis Walton himself has it on his website, so if that's traviswalton.com. You can go there and also buy a DVD or the book from Travis and actually read the book as well.
0: Yeah, and it, I know that your film has won so many awards, and after watching it, I totally see why. I mean, just even from a filmmaker's perspective, it was. Extremely well done. Your research was wonderful. Um, you know the people that you interviewed, getting the testimonials, covering both ends of the spectrum of you know the skeptical and the debunk- the debunkers, but also you know kind of having some of that data with the polygraphs i mean it just you did a great job i think for both sides for people who are true believers and true skeptics i think this documentary is going to leave you know both sides just kind of wondering a little bit more so congratulations on this i really loved it and enjoyed it and i'm glad that it came across my way so thanks for being a guest here
1: Thank you so much for having me on the air. I'm I'm happy to come back again with with Peter at another time. And Peter would be a great interview for you as well. And he's right up in your area. so. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely try to do that.
0: Great. Thank you, April, very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day four-day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today, and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people. Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.